Hi everyone, welcome to the Self-Publishing Tips and Tricks Show, a series designed to give you insight into the world of self-publishing and marketing your books. I'm Shannon, writing under the pen name SC Houston, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Ben Pick. I'm Morgan Lee. And we're here today with M.M. Ward. We're going to ask her questions about her self-publishing journey and how she markets her books. But before we jump into the interview, do you guys have any news or points of interest that you want to talk about? Yeah, sure. Every Monday night, I have my YouTube channel, Ryan to Write, and I am fast approaching episode 50 and my one-year anniversary. So that's coming up uh, right around when this should be posted. So stay tuned. Awesome. So I don't have anything specific to talk about. Um, hopefully, I'm going to continue posting on my Wednesday and Friday schedule over on my channel, but I don't really have anything new to shout out. And I think uh, the time that this episode releases, we'll be coming toward the end of our time together working um, on critiquing each other's books, hopefully within the next couple of weeks after. I'm just, I'm really working, I'm revising huge sections. Ma'am, Morgan, you don't know I'm adding so many chapters right now. <laughs> and doing it on the fly so yeah man, I, yeah you've given me a lot to think about in my in my chapters I'm like oh i should really have a chapter like this <laughs> so i'm adding more yeah so um let's talk about our guest author today emma mord is a farm mom and a stroke survivor as the author of over 20 books she walks in the penumbrum a space of partial illumination between the shadow and the light as she writes stories about and for those who face situations about overcoming or succumbing to adversity and the tragedies of life and welcome, Mama Maggie. Hello, lovelies. This is not another edition of Hold My Latte 2022. This is self-publishing tips and trips. Yay. Well, welcome to our show. Would you please take a moment, introduce yourself, and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Mama Maggie Ward. I am a farm mom and stroke survivor from the Colorado Prairie. My branding is Penumbra Mine. It's kind of a geeky thing. A penumbra is part of a shadow, the part of the shadow that lies between the full light and the full shadow. So it's kind of what other people would call the gray. And I think that that's where most of us live. A lot of people in the world struggle with overcoming trauma, um, suppressing it, facing it. And a, a lot of the threads that message in my books are about people who are facing very, very relatable traumas and trying to overcome them. And unfortunately, there are some of my characters who succumb. Not everybody overcomes, but that's the way of the world. I really like to write immersive fiction, and I am here to talk about my self-publishing journey. I always love your explanation about the penumbrum, because I think that's that's perfect, especially for those gray characters that we like to put into our stories. Before we jump into the questions of self-publishing and marketing your books, could you tell us what made you want to start writing? When I had my stroke, I lost language. You don't realize how many words you use in a day, how many words you use in a moment until you're laying in a hospital bed, paralyzed on one side, and you can't tell the doctor that you feel dizzy. And I was down to maybe three or 4,000 words total. I lost all my languages. I lost all my music. So my occupational therapist was like, you've got to get these back. You've got to start working in it. And by then we had begun to figure out that I was having memory issues. So I, because I have always been an avid journal keeper, I was writing everything because my brain for the first four years, I was not making new memories and I have slowly started making new memories. But the way that I retained what was happening in my life is I wrote it down and then I read it three or four time and it stores your brain will store information in different places experiential memory and rote memory the things you learn store in different parts of your brain so i began storing my life that way and my occupational therapist was like you're very creative start writing stories you know you're helping your daughters with their schoolwork and their vocabulary you're teaching yourself so i wrote a story and they were like oh this is very good maybe you should just start you know writing and so that's what i did I started writing and I joined Wattpad and I started writing a, a fanfic of my daughter's favorite YouTube roleplay series and another one of a book called Clayton by Rachel Mills and who is a very dear friend of mine. I love her to death. And from that led to me ghostwriting a book for my friend Bren called Apostasy because we were in that very beginning of the Alpha, Omega, Omegaverse trope thing starting and both being abuse victims, both being survivors and overcomers, we were like, nope. So she had the story ideas. I had the writing shoes. So that's what we worked on. And that was where my writing journey began, was just 
recovering from my stroke and refocusing my creativity. Well, I am so glad that you were able to overcome what happened to you. And would you mind elaborating on that first piece that you ever published and how you took it from concept to self-publishing? That piece, it became the first book, which is in a series which is now 1.3 million words called The Relic of Time and Shadows War. And what it was is I was a gamer. And so we were watching a YouTube role play along. And what it is, is my friends Jorge and Christine were making basically a movie series using Minecraft as an animation generator, which is very clever use of the technology. We got to know them and Jorge put out this music parody of a song called Centuries. And in the animation, there was a little boy running through the city. And the girls were like, well, who is that little boy? Because he wasn't in any of the series. I'm like, well, maybe, maybe that's the good prince's son. And the bad prince is attacking the city and he's trying to get to safety. So I began storytelling. You know, we I, I've told my children stories. I'm from, that's just something my family does is storytelling. So I began making up stories. And then then I began writing down the stories because I can't remember anything at this point, no memories. So I have to write down what I'm telling them or I won't remember how to tell them later. That basically became uh, the War of Prophecies and the Relic of Time. And it, it was so interesting that this little two minute music video became a seed for 1.3 million words. And it's you never know where your inspiration will come. So for all of the young writers out there, if you get this idea and you're like, oh, this is just stupid, it's silly, it's crazy, whatever the imp, your imposter syndrome tells you in your head, don't listen to it. Write it down anyway, because you don't know if that story idea is going to be the seed that plants your forest. That is really good advice. Um, so what made you decide to self-publish rather than traditionally publish? I was writing a series set in the imaginary Colorado town called Pagosa Cliff. It started with my friend Sarah Liss was writing this satirical, hysterical book on overdone tropes and how tropey cliches were just off the wall. And so when she was coming to an end of it, there was about five of us in this group that were always there when she was putting up new chapters and we were reading the chapters, we were laughing and commenting. And she's like, oh, well, here's the deal. Let's do a challenge for Camp Nano. Everyone has to write in their least favorite genre, five tropes. I'll pick five tropes at random, you get to write them. And it's like, well, chiclet and and like billionaire romance, I, I hate those. I, I, do, mm, I, I just despise them. And so she's like, that's your genre. And so my tropes were star athlete and billionaire and twins or siblings you have to twist a bachelor party and the other one was like mafia or something like that so i took it and i created blue butterflies which was the first in this world of pagosa cliffs which is this it's a combination of pagosa springs and ure colorado so it's based kind of in a real place but i take all these people and i put these real problems into these real people and we're basically just following their choices. And so that was what became my first real book in this that I decided to query. And so I started querying Blue Butterflies and I had written another book called Red Velvet and Anemones, which is about my baker Millie who moves to Pagosa Cliffs after a, a terrible marriage, a bad divorce. Uh, her sister dies, she's left with a newborn niece and she's just trying to start over. And so I started querying Blue Butterflies and Red Velvet. And I had some really you know, I did all I did the pitch fest, which that was my second year doing the pitch fest. And after that, I was like, Nope, I'm done. Because some people were like, Oh, we've got the you know, we got it. We like your storyline, it needs a little more developing. We've got it, there's this or that. But one of the things that really struck me were two rejections that I got. And one of them was, it's obvious you have brain damage, you should stop writing. Yes, I got that back. The second one was I have a Millie's best friends are a long term gay couple, Mitch and Jackson. And the request was that they, one of them be made a female, that they be shifted from a gay couple to a hetero couple. And I'm like, that does not work for the long-term storyline. Here's why. And then they were like, well, you know, you've got this disaster where the bakery is blown up. Could he die in the bakery? And I'm like, 
I think we're done here. And so I pulled back and I started to step out and started self-publishing. I had the Revelation of Ash series that I was also starting to query. And I was like, you know what? This one's just ready. And there are two or three other people still looking at Red Velvet. I'll just give them some time and I'll do this other series. And then uh, Red Velvet and Anemones and the entire Pagosa Cliffs Anemones series was picked up by Editingle Indie House, which was actually started by some friends of mine who were just... They were so sick of the, these repeated books over and over and over. Same tropes, the same. I mean, you can only read the same 10 versions of a story so many times before you're done with a genre. So they picked up Red Velvet and Anemones, and we've broken up the entire. It was originally four books, and now it's like six books. We've broken it up, spread it out. And the interesting thing is, three years later, the rejection that I got about can you make your long-term gay couple hetero reached back out to me to know if I had found an agent for this book. So times change, but no, I I decided to self-publish simply be because, and to indie publish because nobody's got time for that kind of bias. I mean, it's enough in the news. You watch Hollywood for decades and you see them doing this over and over and over again. And my answer was no, I, I don't care if I'm not with a subsidiary of a big romance house. That does not matter to me as much as the integrity of Mitch and Jackson being the most stable couple in the entire Pagosa Cliffs world. And it, it was very important to me to maintain them because they are what I imagine two of my high school friends would have been had they survived the AIDS pandemic. So yeah, that was really what pushed me onto the edge was just, I'm, I'm not going to cow to some of these tropes and I'm going to fight for my characters and my story. So is Edit Ingle then considered a traditional publishing house? They are an independent publishing house that does like traditional publishing. They've got a stable of about a dozen authors. Not only do they go through and publish a book, try to get books out from several of us several times a year, but they also do anthologies. Snowflakes and Winter Dreams was their Christmas anthology, which has one of my Pagosa Cliffs adjacent storylines in it's set in Pagosa Cliffs and you see a few familiar characters. Um, they also do a Halloween anthology every single year called Curse of the Hallow Moon, Under the Hallow Grave. And I have stories in there about um, Daisy the Cow. Did anything <laughs> or anyone inspire you to uh, self-publish? My friend Rachel was going through... Um, she was also querying with me for Clayton and she was considering self-publishing, but basically just jumping from Wattpad to Inkit. And then I sold a couple of stories to different reader apps and I just decided, you know, Amazon's, you know, making it easier for indie authors. So while uh, Michelle and Risha and Catherine are working on Anemones, I'm just going to start working on my own stuff because I am, unfortunately, the bad thing about my stroke is that it like amped up my compulsiveness. So once I start on a project, must finish the project. And it's like last year I did Hold My Coffee 2021 and I self-published a mountain of books because in the six years since my stroke, I have over 2 million words written and only partially edited. And so, yeah, it doesn't do you any good to have that many words if you're they're just sitting in a notebook somewhere. Did you have any misconceptions before you self-publish or like after you self-publish your books? I had seen other authors crash and burn self-publishing. So I knew that it was going to be very difficult. I was very cautious of the vanity presses because a friend of mine still has boxes and boxes of her husband's book in their garage because they paid for a vanity press and the editing wasn't done properly. The formatting wasn't done properly. And the distribution network was there that they promised was not there. So I knew that there were so many pitfalls to self-publishing. I will say that the, the one of the hardest parts to learn to do myself was the formatting. Formatting is crazy hard. And 
getting the dangles off the end of the pages into chapters, adjust, adjusting the chapter pages. Do you use serif fonts? Do you use non-serif fonts? What do you put as your chapter headings? How do you do the headers and the footers? And if you try to shrink the footer, what is that going to do to your page numbering? If you try to shrink the header, what is that going to do to your title and your name, author name at the tops of the pages? Do you write left, center, full justify? Do you don't want to have the raggy right? You want the full justification. It makes it look better. But the problem with full justification is you also have to go back and say like, oh, look, here is a line with three words on it across the entire page. That line has to be like you you have to basically control shift, create a new line for that line and then left justify it so that it's not a word, a word, a word all the way across the page. My first books are like on their fourth edition for like just for the formatting because adjusting them, having to figure them out. Formatting is a lot hard and formatters deserve all the money they make. I totally agree. Editing took me many, many hours of working with my draft, trying to figure out how to get it right. And I mean, draft to digital does offer a way for you to do it for free through their site, but you don't get some things that you may want in there. And I know there were certain things I really wanted that I couldn't do with the draft to digital. So I wanted to do it myself. And that was many hours <laughs> of torture. So Kindavella is a new publishing platform through Amazon that came out last year. It's still not worldwide. It's only in a few select places. And I know here in the US it is available for authors. And it's where people, um, authors upload their serial fiction. And we're curious, why did you decide to publish in Kindle Vela? I've been with Inkit for six and a half years. And one of the moderators on Inkit was a friend of mine. They were like, have you heard about Vela? And I was like, no, what's Vela? And so we started talking about it. And so I sent them on their link. I said, I would like to join Vela. Here is my other work. And they were like, okay, we'll take you in the beta. This is April of last year, 2021. So I put the first two books of Relic of Time and Shadows War, The Relic of Time and Prophecy and War of Prophecies onto Candovella. And the way it works is it is a serialized fiction. So it works in episodes. So the trick with it is you need to have kind of a hook or something going on that makes your readers want them to know what's going on further down the story. And that keeps them coming back. And it works really well. I just ran a survey this last week about Vela. And unfortunately, they had a a super soft launch when they launched in July. And so only the authors are advertising Vela. So if you have a story on Vela, you're the one advertising it. They haven't figured out how to make it link to your author page for Amazon. So your Vela stories are not linked to your Amazon page. So that is a pitfall. The visibility so far is the biggest pitfall, but I am enjoying it on Vela. I enjoy it. The authors get 50% of what is paid for the chapters. So if if you pay 25 cents for a chapter, the author is getting 12 and a half cents of that. Now that depends on how you buy your tokens. If you buy the bigger batches of tokens, they cost a little less. So the author gets a little less. So if you buy a thousand tokens for a 25 cent chapter, I only get nine cents, but you'll go through and read more chapters because you have more tokens. Interesting. Now you just mentioned a lot of differences in how publishing on Bella is different from other mediums. So I'm going to try and shift the question away from that. What makes writing in Vela a little different than say other mediums? Writing in Vela uh, because it is serialized fiction and it is episodic, you have to have more of an action kind of a thread to your writing. You have to have that hook. Two kinds you can have. You can have the short-term hook, the cliffhanger at the end of your chapter, but you don't want to do that every single chapter because even though people who read serialized fiction expect it, they need a break too. You need short-term hook. When you're writing per chapter between a thousand and five thousand words. The other thing is you need a long-term hook. You need something that has them going. But what about this to bring them back? Because I came from writing on Wattpad and Inkit, which is a form of unpaid serialized fiction, I was already kind of groomed into writing for this format. So I had an advantage that other authors who are writing novel fiction, because when you're writing novel fiction, you can end at the end of a scene, at the end of an interaction, without having to carry it into the new chapter. But that is not what you can do with the serialized fictions. You have to have something for the majority of your chapters to carry the reader on, to lure them, to make them to want to know what's happening. So the difference between writing traditional fiction and writing serialized fiction is that hook. And the best comparison that I can give authors who are thinking about writing in serialized fictions is go 
back and listen. Uh, you can find these on YouTube and Spotify. The old radio serial shows. Only the Shadow Knows. Go and look at, just listen to how they leave a hook at the end. How they leave some danger there. They leave some unanswered questions. When you are writing for a serialized fiction app like Vela, as an author, you need to be very aware of what these are. And so your readers don't get bored. You need to be very careful that they don't seem contrived. I hope that answers your question, Ben. So since you've started posting on and publishing on Vela, have you noticed any upticks in your backlog list? So has posting on Vela kind of increased your sales of your backlog of books? Posting on Vela has brought a few people to my Amazon page. It has brought a few people to my Inkit page because I do leave like rough drafts on Inkit for free because I understand that Amazon Kindle is expensive. You can get a Kindle for free, but buying the books, unless you're on Unlimited, is not free. And I tell people I am not a fan of Unlimited because I've had thousands and thousands of KU reads and not been paid because they didn't go to the very last page of my book or they've stopped reading my book like somewhere at the point they've stopped reading my book and I never got paid for those reads. I have um, actually had a couple people who, who've been reading The Relic of Time who've reached out to me and been like, is there more of this series and everything? And because of Vela's rules, I had to pull that series. This books that are on Vela cannot be on any other platform. So I have had to pull those books, but people are asking about the world. They're asking about the series. I have had several people go to the Huntsman of Adamo's prequel, which is on my Amazon page, and get the quartet. So it has helped, but I'm the one doing all the marketing. Amazon's not doing any marketing for Vela. So it's it's me on my Instagram. It's me on my Twitter, on my Facebook page, on my Inc. page. And I'll be honest with you, I suck at marketing. Marketing is the worst part and my absolute lowest writer skill. I've watched all the videos, I've read articles, I've sat in webinars, and the first thing that I'm going to do when I get a writing contract is find someone else to do the marketing because I hate it so much. I, I'm on with you on that. The marketing is definitely not my favorite part, and I'm always watching new stuff and reading new stuff all the time. I think Sarah Sutton just came out with a video a few weeks ago, I think now, where she said she used a company to help her with her Facebook ads, and I wanted to reach out to her and be like, what company did you use? <laughs> <laughs> not to have the funds for it right. in the future I may I'm kind of surprised too because I think I remember you saying at one point that you were not getting paid for your Kindle pages and because you're supposed to get paid for every Kindle page read that's the idea is that you get paid for every page regardless if they finish your book or not so I'm wondering if something's not working right in your account or I don't know have you tried getting on the phone I um I have not um I I every time somebody buys my ebook it pops up Every, you know, I get that every single time. But when they're like, you know, the KU shares are coming out and stuff like this, I, I never see a change in what I'm making. I see my book sales. I see my, my print copy sales. I see my ebook sales. But I, I have never noticed anything from KU. I definitely would be worried about that. If I, you know, if, you, if you've got the time at some point, maybe get on the phone with them and find out what's going on. Because you should be getting paid for your pages read. I mean, that's, you should be getting that. That You're the author. You're, that's something you should be getting with your contract with them. Especially with having your, your books exclusive or those ones exclusive with Amazon. Mm -hmm. so I do get paid like all of my Vela's and my Vela's do well enough that I do get the Vela bonus. Nice. Every month. I don't know if I could be good at doing serialized fiction or I'd probably jump in there. But um, like you said, you already have the experience doing that. So that works out really well for you. And I've heard about those bonuses that they're pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So you also like to write flash fiction. So we were wondering, have you decided to publish any works based on a flash fiction piece? If you go to my YouTube channel, um, link below, there in my books and blah, blah, blah playlist, you will find uh, some of my flash fictions that I have read onto my YouTube channel. I do have a blog on Blogspot where I will post my flash fictions. Everyone's telling me I should start putting it on Kofi as exclusive content. So I, I might start doing that, but I do share my flash fictions because of the way that I learned to write for college way back in the 19, early 1990s. I learned this method called writing the tree. The idea was, well, let me start. Uh, so I took this class in May and it is very hard to do an English writing credit in May because you basically have 17 
18 to 19 days to draft and outline and produce a book to turn in at the end of the semester. So what I learned is to basically write little flash fiction scenes and then go through and put all the scenes together and basically from those scenes do a character build, do a plotting build, do a world build, and basically you build the tree out of these flash fiction scenes. And so last month, um, at the end of February, Chandra Arthur and Natalie Locke did a 12-hour flash fiction live February stream. And I wrote a flash fiction, a thousand words in one world in three scenes. So I did that. And I started doing flash fiction because I am notoriously bad at overwriting. I need 5,000 words to describe my love of coffee. Minimum 5,000 words. So I started doing flash fictions so I could start grooming myself to stop overwriting so much because I go through to start editing my books and I'm like, don't need that, don't need that, don't need that. And by the time I finish just cutting, I'm 20,000 words down on my manuscript of just useless stuff. So being a notorious overwriter, flash fiction, I started doing it to try to train myself to write more concisely and it's work. I also use it when I have writer's block. If I have writer's block, I will just do some mindless flash fiction prompts to get myself out of where I'm trying to write into another world for a while so that then I can go back and look at the whip that I'm working on with fresh eyes. Flash fiction is my spa day or my staycation. I see. I'm also someone who is a very bad overwriter, and that's led to me publishing at an exponentially slower rate. So what advice do you have to publish faster without losing in that quality? Publishing faster is is a very tricky thing because not everybody produces the same number of words a day. Not everybody can do the same number of editing words per day. You need to do what you do for your is best, not only for your pacing and your writing, but for your own mental health. Trying to push yourself to like, oh, well, I've got to be Stephen King and write 2000 words before a book before I can do this. Or I need to be Brandon Sanderson and write four books in a year and start a GoFundMe page and rack in $15 million in 24 hours. So the most important thing with it is what I do for my routine is after I've written for my day or for my hours during the day, later in the evening, like before I go to bed, I will go back and I will read back through what I wrote for that day and I will mark in red or green or whatever color my section is because I write for every every day that I write every sprint that I write I change the color of my ink so I know how much productivity I'm getting in that section and then I'll go back and I'll underline it or I'll change the color to my editing color so I know I need to look at this do I need to shorten this do I really need this sentence and if you just if you take just 20 minutes at the end of your day to go back and look over what you write and say, do I really need this? Do I really need that? Do I really need this? This helps you editing in the long term because you'll know you're already thinking about, did I really need this when I wrote it the first time? And so that will help compress your editing process. I did it because I had brain damage from my stroke, but telling other authors that trick has seemed to help them. The other thing is let your computer read what you've written to you because if you're sitting there hearing it, and you're losing track of things, if you're not catching up with things, listening to it, your reader's going to get lost in it. And you can do the preemptive edit ahead of time, which will help you once you get finished with that first draft to get the second, third and fourth edits done. But that is the only advice that I can give is to do like a little short segment, edit what you wrote earlier in the day. Yeah, I think that's really good, especially listening to your your story out loud has definitely helped me a lot with editing and writing and revising my stuff. So in your perspective, what has been your greatest publishing success so far? Honestly, it's it's not been financial. It's been the thing that I consider my most successful part was when I was first starting on Wattpad and Inkit and I was writing Apostasy with Bren, then I was writing Blue Butterflies and Red Velvet and Anemones. And I was talking about the main character, Millie in Red Velvet and Anemones, was a survivor of being a child molester. And the character Camille in Blue Butterflies is a sexual assault survivor. And when I was talking about those and about them struggling with it, having women and a man reach out to me and say, this is what happened to me. I've never told anyone. 
this is what happened to me. I think I need to get some help. And that is actually my biggest success. That for, for me to have someone say, I've decided that I'm, I need to try to deal with this, that reading your book made me you know, feel less alone. That has been my biggest success. As far as just being able for myself personally, just being able to overcome my stroke enough to put out a shelf full of books, that is my victory. Total in, in, you know, I've only made a few thousand dollars in the six years that I've been writing and the four and a half that I've been publishing. And I'm okay with that because for me, it's more about making a difference. And like I said, we all live in the penendra. We've all suffered some kind of trauma. You know, and another thing is I put trigger warnings in my books. I, publishing publishers will fight you for this. I mean, you know, I've had people that have been like, like added me about therapy doesn't work and nobody recovers from this and all of this stuff. And I'm like, nope, my character's going to therapy in this chapter. She is calling her a therapist and waiting for a callback. And having someone sit down with another character and say, look, you need to talk to someone about this. This is your, you have turned into a very toxic person and you need to talk to someone that is the biggest thing for me blue water just came out this year chapter 28 big letters this is not something you're supposed to do if you're publishing i put it in all my books because as a survivor i have come across things in a book that no warning is a trigger and i don't want my readers to suffer that well, I think as far as your publishing success, having all those books behind you, I can't wait to be there one day. <laughs> So that I'm looking forward to that. And again, yes, it's it's nice to have the money as well, but it's also nice to just to see your books in print and know that your your words are getting out there and reaching people. So on the opposite end, what has been the least favorite part of your indie journey? Marketing. <laughs> I I well, Shannon knows. I hate marketing. I hate, and uh, uh, I just want to write. I just want to write and share my books. <sighs> I, I, that's my least favorite part is the marketing, the, the editing. I don't like the editing, but it's a necessary, it's necessary because nobody wants to read my word vomit that my broken brain spits out like a word escher onto a keyboard. And so that the editing, as much as I don't like the editing, I see the improvement from version to version to version. And I literally like have like 20 versions of every one of my books, like on a terabyte drive, because I like to see the evolution. And that makes the goal oriented compulsive part of me very happy. But the marketing part, I hate that part. I hate having to advertise my books. I hate having to set up the things in Canva and Instagram and set the dates and go do the blog thing and put the blog dates. And I hate the marketing part. That's fair. That's fair. And I completely understand you with the whole editing thing because I was clearing out some stuff for my parents' house and I found a CD with some of my old work on there and I could see how uh, it's progressed since then. So it's always a fun yeah. thing to, to see. Doesn't that feel good when you see the arc and you're like, ooh, maybe I can do this writer thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've had a computer with a CD or DVD writer on it in you know a decade. So that's that's... Send me back a couple of years. It was fun. Now, are you comfortable discussing any publishing missteps or things you would have liked to have done differently? Fine with that. I like, like I told Shannon and Morgan knows from hanging out with me and Barrett, I am perfectly fine telling you how much I have screwed up things. And I have forgetting to advertise books that are about to be released, forgetting to do the cover release, forgetting to do the promo. 2021 was the first year that I actually started taking that seriously. In 2020, I had my editing indie house behind me going, you will make videos about your books. <laughs> and and uh, Catherine and Michelle were on me all go make the video go read part of your book and so there's a lot of missteps I've made the formatting journey was probably the biggest one I think do I have it let me see if I can find oh here we go raggy right I did the raggy right so when I published the first time that I went through publishing the revelation night series uh with the revelation of ash and the ravers I actually left justified all of my formatting and published the books and it was like three months before I somebody was like why isn't it a square and because it just looked all jaggy on uh, and i was like a square 
oh, oh, I will have to fix that. And um, my chapter headings, that was before I knew that I could make really big chapter headings. I just thought that was something trad publishers did where that chapter heading will be much bigger than all of the other text. So the chapter heading was just bold. Same font, same point, everything, just chapter in just dark letters. And yeah, that's some of the missteps that I've made. One of the really early missteps that I made was I had an editor who did not feel the same way about therapy and overcoming that I did. And so to try to make her happy in the early editions of Red Velvet and Anemones and The Wild Anemone and Some Anemones Are Blue, I went through and I pulled out all of the references of Millie going to therapy or talking to her therapist. And then, and they were like, well, you need to rewrite this. And she wouldn't have reacted this way. And so I started to tear down the book and rewrite it as if Millie's adoptive parents, after she escaped her abusive mother, had not got her eight years of therapy while she was growing up. And I began to hate what that world led to. And so I, I had to go and I'm like, I need a different editor. I said, I can't write out these things that are fundamental to the character because on this path arc, instead of overcoming everything and, you know, struggling to overcome and being set back and struggling to overcome, she, this path character leads to a very, very dark place where she just surrenders and runs the risk of just becoming this very hopeless, desperate, possibly addicted person. And I can't write this book. I can't write this character. And so that was a very early, early thing was having to uh, following what the editor wanted and then being like, I can't write this book that you're wanting. I can't write. I, I have to go back to my original book. I have to put all the therapy things back in. So that was definitely a misstep is not standing up for, you know, I made this big leap standing up for Mitchell and Jackson being allowed to be a long-term gay couple, but I cowed on Millie having therapy and Millie overcoming her child abuse. And that was a mistake that when I realized I was starting to hate this world, that I was like, whoa, 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 wait, what is happening here? And I went back and looked at what I was changing and I was like, nope, I, I can't. I, I got, I have to. Millie's whole purpose is to be this person that just keep crying. So for any new writers out there, listen to what the agents say, listen to what the rejection letters and the editors and the beta readers say, but also consider it very carefully and how it will affect the arc of your characters and how it affects the line of your story. So what advice do you have for self-published authors from the moment that they push publish on their books? The biggest advice for self-published authors went the moment they hit publish. Two things. Do not keep checking your sales page. Just as you know, other authors are selling hundreds of books in their presets. Do not do this to yourself. And the other thing is, is if you find a mistake in your manuscript, do not panic because the advantage of being self-published, especially through Kindle, is you can go back, fix the mistake, re-upload your document, and literally 72 hours, the mistake is gone. So those are the two advices. When you hit publish, just take a little time to breathe. Take a little time to step back. Don't forget to post your media like me. Don't be a mama Maggie. Forget your media. But just remember, you didn't have a team of 20 people working on your book. So there are probably mistakes in it. Here is a piece of solace for you. I have an eighth edition and McCaffrey book. There are five flaws in a book that is an eighth edition that over a hundred people have looked over. So if famous authors with huge staffs and huge publishing houses behind them have errors in their manuscript, it's okay for you to have an error too. It's not the end of the world. It's just a moment. So that's really great advice. And when I published my first book back in November, the force was strong with me. I really wanted to check it over and over and over again if I was selling stuff. And I had to like keep myself. I was like, no, stop. I literally, I shot my computer like three times. I was like, nope, not checking it. Not checking it. So I get that. It's it's a really hard thing. But yeah, you, you, can, you can start to feel defeated if you're not selling as much as you had hoped you, you would sell. And especially if you compare yourself to anybody else, which we all have our own journey. So it's definitely important to remember. So if you can only pass on one thing to aspiring self-published writers, what's your best publishing tip or trick? After running all of the editing passes, which I sent Shannon a list of all of the different levels of editing that I do, the very last thing that you can do before you hit the publish, after you've done all of the formatting, all of the forbidden word checking, all of the grammar, the beta passes, all of that, is sit down, set your computer to read it to you in a voice as far from your own voice as possible, and listen to it as a reader. Don't listen to it as your 
Yorba listened to it as a reader would listen to it the first time. Because that little thing right there, hearing the words, hearing the way the words flow, the dialogues flow, the script flows, without the need to edit it, to tweak it, to change it. That is the best way for you to decide if your book is really ready. The other key is don't listen to the imp. Don't listen to the imposter syndrome that's telling you nobody wants to hear your story. Everybody is looking for that one story out there that will be the one that sticks with them forever. And someone out there, 8 billion other people on this planet, your book will be that story for them. So listen to it like a reader. Don't listen to the M and then hit submit. That is great advice, especially listening to your book in a different medium from what you're used to to try and catch those editing mistakes or things that have been missed up until that point. Now, shifting away from the publishing side, it's to your least favorite topic. What marketing do you do for your books? Not enough. Honestly, I do not do enough marketing. I benefit mostly from word of mouth, from my readers, from Inkit, my old readers from Wattpad, from my blog, from my neighbors. A lot of my neighbors read my book. I do run quarterly 99 cent sales leading up to launches of different books, which I do advertise. I do reading streams a lot where I will read parts of my book onto my vlog. But honestly, I do not do enough marketing and I the little bit that I do, I do not do it well. So has there been a marketing strategy that you have used that you would say is your best money spent? I really haven't spent any money on marketing. It's not something that I can afford to do. My publishing house has done some paid marketing, but I never have. I do not believe in paying for reviews. I see that as highly, highly unethical. I do not believe in paying for interviews. If my book is liked, my book is liked. But like I said earlier, my point is reaching those who are trauma survivors that in an entertaining way, in a storytelling way, so it doesn't feel as harsh and autobiographical when it hit them. I've sent out some arcs to reviewers before, like for review swaps, I've done some of those. They've not worked out well for me because I was putting in all the work and not getting anything back. As far as marketing, I have not paid for Facebook ads. I have not paid for Goodreads or BookBub ads. I haven't bought Amazon ads. So I really haven't spent any money on marketing. It's just been me creating content to advertise my books. I don't know what um, you have going on in your life. And of course, we live in a time where there's not a whole lot of gathering of people. But um, I was just thinking of one one thing. I don't know if you've done it before, but, you know, reaching out to different places and centers where people gather, you know, those who come together for trauma related and coming there to be a speaker. And you could talk about your own experiences and sell your books that way as well. Um, if you're a speaker at different places like that. I'm very hesitant to do that because I don't want people who are trying to overcome to feel like I'm trying to sell them my trauma. So I would be very hesitant to do that. I was going to do a library tour, but the pandy came. So everything, you know, got pushed back on that and it hasn't, we haven't been able to get it rescheduled or anything. But because of some of the things I write, especially in the Pagosa Cliff series and in the beginning of the Book of Ello, Ghost with Cat, Ghost with Ink, Ghost with Hope series, where the MC is a trauma survivor and is dealing with like having to live in a world that she no longer wants to be a part of. Reaching out to trauma survivors is a very thin line to tread. And I just, I don't, I don't think I would feel comfortable like going into an AA meeting and saying, here's my book on Tank Tanner. He's an alcoholic sheriff. I don't know if there's like conferences though, of people getting together to talk about writing in trauma. Cause I think there's, there's a few of those. I have not heard of any. I, I have one. And I, I can't remember the name of it. I just heard of it yesterday. I'll, I'll email it to you. Thank you. Is there any type of marketing that you haven't tried that you would want to? I guess buying ads. And I would actually like to go to some of the cons because uh, you know, I have friends who go and do cons and they sell books at cons. And, and I would like to try that because years, decades ago, before I was mom with a farm, before I was married, I, I did go to like Star Trek conventions and, and science fiction and comic a con. You know, those are really fun things to do. So I, I think I would like to try those. So if you could pass on just one marketing tip or trick to aspiring writers, what would it be? Do your marketing? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> actually do your marketing. Um, no, uh, the one thing that I would pass on would be like, do not compare yourselves to others. No two journeys are the same. Honestly, never look at the sales of your book as proof of your story's value or your worth as a writer. Self-publishing is the bravest, most difficult thing you can do. It's the most difficult thing you could take on. And just find a group of readers and writers that are in the same genre vein as you to help you and support you. Find yourself a tribe and they will help you with your marketing. They will help you with your beta reading. They will help you with your story developing. It's it's a whole process of writing to have your own tribe. And that will help you with your marketing. Like I said, word of mouth is my biggest sale. And it people who know me, people who read what I write. So we're going to transition now from marketing to your writing life. How much time do you spend working as an author versus all the other writing related stuff like editing and finding your readers and marketing your work by reading it? I spend probably 80% of my time as a writer. I, I It's the thing. Writing is the thing I love. It's the part I love. It is the, the part that I want to do most. Unfortunately, that does not bode well for finding readers or things like that. I do go on a lot of like other writer streams as either in the chat or as a moderator or as a guest. I do make videos and stuff. That's probably the additional 20% of my time as a writer. I might spend five, three to five percent of my time marketing. Way too little. But yeah, the majority of my time is writing. And I do, at, because of my brain damage, I do that slot of editing at the end of the day. But I w have been doing a thing where I'm setting aside time specifically for editing. And that actually started when I had COVID during the 2020 NaNoWriteMo. I got it. I was trying to get 50,000 words in. I got it on the 11th. And the entire six weeks I was sick, I could not think creatively. Literally could not have a creative thought. I couldn't taste food and I couldn't taste my coffee and I couldn't creatively write. So I had no choice. So I started editing. And that really helped me realize that I do need to start seriously setting aside blocks of time for editing. So what I my routine now is there will be one day a week that I will get some marketing in, that I will get videos made. And then the rest of the week, depending on what is going on with the kids and the farm and the hubby and my bees, I will work on writing in between and editing every evening so that I am still getting some of it done. The most important thing I can say to somebody is try to establish a routine to encompass the multiple parts of writing and not just the writing. Would you mind expanding on that routine? Do you have word counts that you try for in a given week? Do you have a set number of hours? Do you work more for writing on weekends? What 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 does your writing style look like? Before the pandemic, I was part of the 5 a.m. Writers Club. So I was up every morning, 5 a.m., doing writing before I did the chores. After the pandemic, with homeschooling and nobody leaving and everything, my writing routine basically got blown up. So it was a few hours here, a few hours there. Now that things are shifting back to normal, I'll get up in the morning, I'll do the chores, I might catch a writer's stream in the morning, get an, a couple hours of writing in. Usually I hit Jules, the dawdling writer, has streams three days a week, a couple hours, and I usually get the majority of my writing in between about 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So I have a pretty good six-hour window that I try to get the writing in. I am a two to 3,000 word a day writer, and this year I was trying to do 1,000 words a day, but because I write much bigger than that, I'm, I'm struggling with my self-control and my motivation because I'm like, oh, I don't have to write today. I wrote 3,000 words yesterday. I still have to write. <laughs> it, it's setting up a routine of trying to get a slot in the middle of the day when I don't need to do farm work. I don't need to sit on the kids to make sure they're doing whatever they're supposed to be doing and trying to get the husband to and from work. The farm life is, is busy. It's a full-time job. I adore these people who think that you just throw your animals out in the field with a bale of hay and leave them. How sweet for you. Your animals are going to die. <laughs> but yeah, but my routine is that's what it is. And then from about four to six, I have evening chores. I have making dinner for the family, trying to get the house cleaned up and tidied up, trying to catch up. Uh, I'm usually switching out laundry loads while I'm writing. You know, you have to blend your IRL life with your writerly life. I mean, it would be fabulous if we could all just escape into the writing world and live there for 10 hours a day. But the real life is constantly around you and it's constantly noise. And if you try to ignore that noise, it just gets louder. 
So I do have breaks. I do get up and stretch. I do walk around. I have an elliptical. So if I'm listening to a section to edit it, I can pop my laptop up on my elliptical and like get my miles in while I'm listening to the story. And then in the evening, once everybody is settled down, either they're watching movies, watching TV, they're going to bed. That is when I set in my editing time to try to figure out, do I need to fix this? How does it fit in the story? And so I have the writer block during the day and then I have my little editing block at night. And that has become my base routine for basically five days of the week. The exception for the editing routine is if there is a hockey game on, my family are huge hockey fans. We are hockeyaholic. And if there's a hockey game on, we are all in the living room yelling at the zebra. When you're writing, what typically comes first for you? The setting, characters, or plot? Uh, when I start a new book, because I do the writing the tree method, usually it's a scene. And from that scene, I take the characters and then the setting and then the plot. The plot is actually one of the last things that I really, really work on because I am a compulsive world building. I love building characters. I love building the world. I love exploring it, running around it. Google Earth Street View was the best and worst thing ever invented for writers. I do not go to Pinterest because Pinterest is my rabbit hole. Once I fall down it, you're not going to find me for a few days. So the scene and the ideas for the characters in the world, those are the things that come to me first. And then I begin building the world around the different scenes that come to me in my head. And I begin building the plot around how do I make these scenes come together? And I have a lot of scenes that I came up with for stories that have never made it into a story. I have a folder on my computer and I have a three ring binder that are literally my orphan scenes. And if I'm stuck somewhere in another story, I can go, do I have anything in here? Flipping the pages, looking for the scenes to try to find what can be used to help move this story along? Have I already written it? Because sometimes you'll think you're like, I'm sure I've written that somewhere. And we all have scenes that are like, I love this scene. I don't want to delete it, but it doesn't really work in this story. Never completely get rid of everything. Save those breadcrumbs. I think of a lot of us, we, we do, we have like a cut scenes pile somewhere, whether on our computer or whatever. <laughs> So yeah, I, I agree. We should never get rid of those. Uh, you keep talking about the tree method. Is that a tree? The writing the tree. The writing the tree. I've never heard that before. Is that from like a book or something? No, that, so when I took a May semester way back in 1992, I, I needed a creative writing credit. So they had this May semester that was basically a 19 day class. And it was actually one of the hardest classes I've ever taken because just the volume of work. And I have a video about it on my channel about the writing the tree method and I cannot remember the teacher's name but she was this white haired hippie who always wore hair in a braid and great big full skirts and the broomstick skirts and all the all the jade beads and a lot of the other students hated her but I thought she was amazing and she had us do this thing where the very first day of class she's like okay so I want you to think of two characters in a place and write their interaction and so we did that and we did like 10 of these and she goes so these are your leaves so now you you need to create the branches for your characters and you need to create create a trunk which is your world that you're building and the root from your characters growing up into the trunk and out into the branches and this becomes your plot world from your world build down at your root your trunk builds up into your branches to your characters and to their interactions and she described it as writing a tree and that was the method that I've learned I haven't seen it in any book the closest book that I found was called The Plot Garden, where the author described creating a book as like planning a garden, but it's a 40-year-old method. I don't know if she ever wrote any books about her method, but this is what she taught us. And so we started this, and then the next few days, we were creating more scenes and creating the characters, and then we were creating the world build. And then, and she had us in this huge auditorium, and, you know, there's 30 students with paperwork spread all over this auditorium. And by the end of the 17 days after after we had done beta reading for each other, after we had created these 15,000 word books, because I'm an overrider, mine was closer to 30. Everyone by the end of that had the base for a novel. And you said it's on your YouTube channel? We can go find out it more about on, it? Okay. It is on my YouTube channel. 
if you're interested, uh, writing the tree, um, the part one is about the actual class that I did and writing the tree part two is I'm taking, I took a book called Cowboy a la carte and it basically began explaining how I built the plotting and planning for this book. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I definitely have to check that out. So in 2021, you published six books and had pieces appear in two anthologies. What did it take to publish so quickly and what challenges did you face in publishing at such a fast pace that may be different from the challenges that you've had for your other published novels? The advantage I had with this was after I caught COVID, I couldn't do any writing. So I just started editing. Most of my works were already edited, at least two passes edited. I realized I had this huge volume of words. And so I started like really, really detailed editing, finalized editing. And my friend Kara Bound suggested making December a practice for an acorn year, which 2021, she's like 2021 could be our acorn year. Plant the tree for your success. I like trees. I use a lot of tree metaphors. <laughs> so in December of that month, I had already been editing Ghost with Cats to be published and the first book of the Huntsman of Adamas Quartet called A Huntsman's Honor. And so I thought, I can I can do this. I can do the publishing. So I put these two books out in December. And then as January rolls around, I'm like, yeah, I can do this. I can do the publishing. And my brain went, let's do 10 projects. And I was like, okay, so I have the rest of the Huntsman Quartet. So I just, I was literally 12 hours a day editing because we were all sick. We were all, all at home. We weren't going anywhere, doing anything. And because of the stroke damage in my brain, I cannot watch movies because of all of the flashiness. So the family would be watching movies and I would just be sitting out in the living room editing while they were watching movies or Netflix binging. And by the end of December, when I was starting to feel better from COVID, I had 200,000 words edited. Yes, Ben, make the, don't do this. Make the face, Ben, but don't do this. This is not normal behavior. So because of my obsessive compulsiveness with finishing goals and finishing projects, I have this need once I set a goal for myself that either I'm going to do it or I am going to break my soul and crash and burn in the most glorious manner possible. So every month I set a book every month. This book has to be out on this date. This book has to be. And I started the grinder. And from those two books that came out in December, from January through June, I have to book every single month, January through June. Every month on either the 10th or close to the Friday before the 20th, I published a book every single month, plus dropped the books on Vela in April. And then June and July, I kind of took a little bit of break because my brain was melting. And so I kind of relaxed, took it really easy for camp, just did some editing. For the August 80K, I did editing instead of writing. But during that time period for Camp Nano, I was also doing World Anvil Summer Camp, which is 30 prompts, a lot of flash fiction and world building. So much fun. If you just need to get away from the writing and do some world building and stuff like that, World Anvil is a great resource because as you're putting your articles in, they have drop down menus suggesting other things to do related to that article. So if you're world building, World Anvil was started for tabletop gamers and has spread into the writing community. So six books plus the two in December. And then I had to get the anthology written, the Christmas and Halloween anthologies came up. And I knew I was doing the Halloween anthology and then I was asked to do the Christmas anthology. So I took a 1200 word short that I had written and blew it up into a 15,000 word story. So I would have something to go in the Christmas anthology. Then Preptember and Preptober, just kind of taking it easy, getting ready for publishing. Uh, my publishing company was working on The Wild and Enemy. So we were doing the final editing for that. That published in November. December rolled around and on December 10th, the anniversary of the first publish for Ghost with Cats, which was the first book in the Hold My Coffee 2021 challenge, I published the third book in the series, Ghost with hope and then I was done. So all total, once I worked around and having to keep writing books from The Relic of Time and Shadows onto Vela, I ended up with four books on Vela from The Relic of Time and Shadows War series, uh, plus a short Christmas story.
story called Tiger Lily Inn. And then I had published the entire Ghost with Cats, Ghost with Ink, Coast with Hope, the Book of Elo trilogy, the Huntsman of Adamo's Quartet, Tarnished Stars, The Fire Burning Within, and The Wild and Enemy. So it was the first six months of the year was a complete and utter grind on just getting the editing done because I felt really called out that, you know, my normal accomplishment was 30 to 50,000 words a month. That's my normal. Suddenly I can't do that normal. So I just decided I have all these words in the bank. Let's start editing. Fair enough. And you listed off such an impressive array and variety of different books. Did you notice that any of them were easy to publish than others? The books where I have a great deal of affection for the character in them were much easier to go through and publish than ones that I'm like, oh yeah, I like these guys. But it's like like the Huntsman was really easy for me to do the Huntsman Quartet because I love Yuri. Yuri is so broken and he goes back and forth between being a complete and utter jerk to being yeah well I, I really didn't mean to be that much of a jerk <laughs> but no I'm gonna be a jerk again because you know things and you know he's he's got some interesting goggles he sees the world through and the book of Elo series the ghost with cats ghost with hope ghost with ink that was really easy for me to publish because I'm very fond of Annie Annie is one of the favorite characters that I've ever built I struggled with the flame burning within was difficult because the two main characters have such different the sisters have such different voices and it's very hard to have this very jaded voice and this very hopeful voice and having to make sure that they don't leech into each other. So that was the hardest one editing. But some of the books went really easy. The editing went really easy. The By the fifth editing pass in my list of the way I do things, sitting down and listening to the books as a reader, by the time I got through all the editing and all the betas and all of the stuff, some of them were so easy and it just felt so natural just like breathing out to put these books out and others it was like get a tow truck and harness up the goats from the backyard because we're going to drag this one to the finish line have you noticed any trends in genres that you've written in when it comes to sales or positive reviews uh, no, not really. Uh, because I'm not, I don't pay attention to that kind of thing. If I am picking books to read, I don't pick them based on reviews. I see the blurb and I, I also, uh, here's something that makes me deviant. I don't look at book covers when I'm picking a book. For me, it is about the blurb and... <sighs> Get your pitchforks. The first and last chapter. Yes, I will read them in the bookstore. Does that mean you've read my last chapter already of my first book? Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. By the way, Shannon's books are amazing. The world building. I am enjoying it so much. I, I am through Lily. Almost, about a third of the way through Lily. So on my way to the doctor today, guess what I'm reading in the car? I know. Well, I so appreciate it. Thank you. So, you are very welcome. <laughs> so what has been your favorite work to write so far and why? Um, I, the, my very favorite one, I would have to say, would be the Ghost With series because I am a huge sci-fi fan. I, I like hard system sci-fi and I love not just the arcs of the characters, but literally the arc of the entire Elo species. The Book of Elo basically starts with uh, Dr. Annalise Winterstub and she's a ghostwriter. She's a former NSA analyst who has PTSD from a trauma event so bad that she has developed these sets of rules that she lives by and she is a ghost writer and a ghost writing instructor for the National Novelist Guild. And she basically travels around to different colleges and she'll do like a one class a day in these different places as part of her socialization therapy because she's the kind of person who, if left to her own device, she would lock herself in her house and never leave. And she gets abducted from her hotel room by Omni Energy mercenaries because they think that she can finish her dead mother's research which is an alternative form of energy called Project Pandora. And basically, it's she ends up on the run across the country with three aliens who came to stop the humans from using this energy technology because of the potential to literally destroy the planet. And then it goes from there. Annie ends up joining this research group in the second book, and they're trying to stop the use of Pandora energy. And the renegades from the LO people from basically 
basically looting Earth. And she gets abducted and taken back to Elo for ransom. But she convinces the people who took her that I'm the good guy here. You sided with the wrong people. And fortunately for her, they're decent people too who didn't realize that they were getting into this. So here is poor Annie trying to live by her rules, mostly a vegan, now living on a planet filled with predators. And she is trying to survive and figure out why the Ellos stopped coming to Earth thousands of years ago and why they're going extinct. And so the Ella, in as well as Annie and her ink giver having a story arc, there's also political turmoil and religious turmoil. And in the background of this whole species going extinct problem, because their species is no longer birthing females. There's like one female child born for every 400. And it's a very caste society. So it's about the journey and it's about her trying to figure out what is really going on with the LO people and why they hid the fact they were going back and forth to Earth for thousands of years. So Annie's journey was probably my favorite one to write. What about your least favorite work to write? Honestly, my least favorite book that I ever wrote was the one that I wrote with Bren called Apostasy about the what is now called the Omegaverse trope, the abusive alpha trope. That was my least favorite to write, but it because it dealt so much with someone who was just abusive because they felt entitled to be abusive. And the main character, Anula, was just basically trying to survive different all these different levels of abuse and bad things that were happening around her and trying to sort of protect the people around her as she could. And it was very hard for me because as a survivor of abuse, as a trauma survivor, you know, putting those things out there that this happens. And one of the things that Bren and I decided that at the end of every chapter in Apostasy, which is on my Inca page, is that we have a list of these are abusive behaviors, how to know if you're in an abusive relationship. These are people that will help you if you're in an abusive relationship. These are addiction support because addiction does not change your abuse. Here is these statistics showing that your abuser will not love you and stop abusing you. And it was dealing with all these toxic probes that were permeating into the werewolf genre six years ago when it was really starting that was really that whole thing was just starting to bloom and trying to tell young women girls as young as 12 and 13 who are reading these things that this is not romantic this is not this you know, your abuser is not going to love you this person who is three times your age is not doing this because they love you they are doing this because you are young and you are letting them abuse you and that was the hardest one for me because Bren um, she was dying from cancer at this time and sadly she passed away before we published the last few chapters but she knew how I was going to end it so I have that consolation so what are you working on next and can you tell us um, more about it and when it will come out what I'm working on uh, right now is a book on Inkit and one of the things that I do because early on I had someone call me out as a liar for my word counts and my stories I publish my raw draft like here's my 3,000 words for the day here's my 2,000 I will publish them at the chapters as I'm writing the rough drafts while I'm doing that I just finished editing Blue Butterflies and posting it onto Amazon as or the Blue Water, which is the first of the Blue Butterflies duology from my Pagosa Stars world. And I'm working on editing Blue Butterflies right now. Well, you've, you've answered all of our questions. And so, but before we wrap up, can you please tell our listeners where they can find you and purchase your books? Okay. Uh, my name is Mama Maggie Ward. I am M.M. Ward on Amazon Penumbra Mine. You can find me under the Penumbra Mine on Inkit, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, my blog is Penumbra Mine Writing. I write in a lot of genres because I'm not genre monogamous. And I just, I love writing. I love sharing the stories. It has been an amazing journey. And if you can't afford uh, Kindle, you can always drop by my Inkit page and read most of my rough drafts for free. I do have a Kofi. I'm disabled. I run a farm. Writing is my little side hustle. So if you can throw me a coffee on Kofi. I would appreciate it. But other than that, I have links below and you can always find me and all my information on my YouTube channel. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your insight and experience and especially taking us on your journey and your inspiration for everything that you've used to write your books and from your own life. And so we really appreciate that. Yeah, thank ahead. you so much for having me. Thank you, Morgan and Ben, for, for the interview and for being willing to have me on. And, you know, just a disclaimer, I am not any kind of professionally trained or educated author or publisher person. I'm just a stroke survivor who likes words a lot. You have a very inspiring story and you write from that perspective, which I, I really appreciate. Well, thank you so much to our listeners and viewers. April 15th, we'll have Sako Tumi, also known as Cass Void, self-styled as Psycho Sako across multiple social media channels. Sako, a horror writer, photographer, illustrator, and belly dancer will be joining us. And that is all for today. Goodbye, everyone. Be blessed. Bye. Bye.